into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is, ooh, that's not right. It's not Sunday. My notes are way off. What is today? <laughs> Tuesday, isn't it? Yeah, today's Tuesday, November 12th, 2013, and this is podcast number 360. <laughs> um, before I introduce our guest, I have something that I wanted to read. This is from the Dread Pirate Roberts in celebration of the reopening of the new, or I should say the opening, of the new Silk Road, the Dread Pirate Roberts said, and I quote, It took the FBI two and a half years to do what they did. Divide, conquer, and eliminate was their strategy. But four weeks of temporary service is all they got. And as our resilient community bounces back even stronger than ever before, never forget that they can only ever seize assets. They can never arrest our spirit, our ideas, or our passion unless we let them. And we will not let them. The Dread Private Roberts. And with me today is Nathan Goodman. Nathan is a senior fellow and Lysander Spooner Research Scholar in Abolitionist Studies at the Center for Stateless Society. Nathan, uh, welcome to Bad Quaker Podcast. I'm really glad to uh, to have you on today. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here. And uh, we could mention your uh, blog site is Dissenting Left, Dissenting Leftist, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to that. Uh, what do you mean by Dissenting Leftist? And and explain what you what you how you view things that like left libertarian and right libertarian. So. I consider myself a leftist, and I mean several things by that. For one thing, it means that I oppose structural poverty, exclusion, bigotry, um, structures of inequality. Um, I oppose what I term capitalism, which differs from how most right libertarians use the term capitalism. And that provides a good segue for talking about what I mean by the difference between uh left and right libertarianism. So in terms of core libertarian values of non-aggression, voluntary association, free market, peace, um, these values uh, remain roughly the same across the libertarian spectrum, hopefully. But um, one area on which we differ is what the general structure that we would expect to emerge in a free market might look like. So the as most libertarians will admit, the structures that have emerged in actually existing capitalist economies have not resulted from a free market. And if you look into work by some of my my colleagues at the Center for Stateless Society, like uh, Kevin Carson, you'll find a lot of really strong arguments for thinking that capitalism, as in the wage system, as in a system in which a small group of privileged people who own capital uh, have a 
control over the means of production, and the majority of the population don't have their own capital and need to go work for other people. That system resulted from a pretty grotesque history of state violence in which states stole land from the peasantry and handed it to those who would become the capitalists, in which people had the cost of going into business for themselves raised through things ranging from zoning laws to licensing laws to a whole litany of barriers to entry in which labor organizing was coercively restricted, in which intellectual property granted monopolies to the existing corporate capitalist class. And so that's really the distinction between uh, my libertarianism and the libertarianism of most left libertarians and right libertarianism, is we agree that markets are useful and good. We agree that um, justice requires respecting non-aggression and respecting individual rights. And as such, we passionately oppose the state, but we think that the existing social order and the inequalities that characterize it, whether these inequalities are inequalities based along class lines, racial lines, or gendered lines, that these inequalities, even when they're not a result of aggression per se, can be oppressive in themselves, and we think that they are largely a result of systematic aggression, and that as such, libertarians should oppose them. That's a really good definition. I like that a lot. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times, uh, you know, libertarians find themselves in a position of confusing what I would, you know, what I would try to distinguish between. Um, what we generally think of as a true free market and what we have out there with corporations that are essentially, well, I look at it like this. I, I, I say, I, I try to, to, to almost invent a new, uh, a new meaning for the word state because most people, there's no difference between a state and a government. It's the, pretty much the same thing. But I, I found that, uh, less useful. So when I think of the state, I think of, the larger thing that is the symbiotic relationship between a government, the corporations, the mainstream media. It's kind of like governments, corporations, and the mainstream media are like a trinity that make up this mystical god, the state. And I, I think if you take away any one of those three from the mix, you cripple the other two so so much that it becomes really just a shadow of what it was you know, as a whole. But together, those three things of governments, corporations, and the mainstream media, they make up this monster that just devours goods and services and keeps us enslaved. I don't know if that's if that uh, is anywhere near your thoughts on the topic. I think that's actually a pretty uh, reasonable and accurate assessment of the situation because uh, the dominant corporations and the dominant firms in our existing deformed unfree markets do interact in a very symbiotic relationship with the state, which I tend to define as uh, specifically government, that is the monopoly on um, force and uh, legal arbitration that's established itself over a territory. Um, and one thing that's very similar to what you were bringing up there is uh, Brett Spangler, who was the founder of the Center for a Stateless Society and our first director, uh, made an analogy of the gunman and the bagman in a robbery. So if someone goes up to you with a gun and says, give me your money, 
your money or your life and takes your money, that's a pretty good analog for how taxation operates. That's a pretty good analog for state socialism. But if uh, he instead goes up and says, give your money to the man who's holding the bag, you still have a gun to your head and you still give your money to someone under coercive duress, the fact that the person holding the bag wasn't the person holding the gun doesn't mean that they're any less a party to theft. Similarly, under our existing economic order, the dominant corporations make a huge amount of their money through state coercion. They're just not the ones committing the state coercion directly. They have the state operating the weaponry while they simply reap the financial benefits. And you can see this all over the world. Uh, you can see it when Coca-Cola benefits from right-wing death squads attacking union organizers in Colombia. You can see it when uh, steel mining companies use the state to uh, forcibly evict peasants from their land in India. I mean, and so even though the direct rights violations are being committed by the state, by the government. The beneficiaries of the rights violations are these ostensibly private actors. And these ostensibly private actors aren't, shouldn't be perceived as some paragons of pure market exchange. They should be understood as beneficiaries of state violence and state-granted privilege. I think probably the easiest way for libertarians to see what we're talking about is, uh, and anarchists in general, is if you look at the relationship between you know governments and the military-industrial complex, that's been well documented and it's well understood. But but what you're talking about even goes beyond that. You know, uh, governments couldn't finance the activities that they're doing currently, including the U.S. government and all the aggression that it pours upon the world. It couldn't do that to the extent that it does it without the without this relationship with the, the banking industry, which is massive corporations that run the banks and which also in turn own massive amounts of these other corporations that all feed off of the same trough of human, you know, uh, of the labor of humanity. And so even though it's obvious to see this sometimes if we're talking about Halliburton or if we're talking about, you know, uh, Boeing or General Electric or somebody like that, it's easy to see those things. And sometimes it's harder to see that when we're talking about Coca-Cola or, you know, or some aluminum factory or, you know, uh, a Walmart. Uh, I know very often libertarians will heap praise on Walmart, but they're, in a very real sense, they're only seeing the grass on the surface of the mountain. They're not seeing the rocks that are underneath that thing. Absolutely. There was actually an article published uh very recently at C4SS by Travis Eby titled uh, What About Walmart Has Anything to Do With Free Markets that gets at some of what you're talking about. And with regards to the connections between uh, big banks and state violence, we also see that a lot with the prison system, which is a big interest of mine. Uh, most of the big banks, um, the big one that uh, activists I work with have targeted uh, is uh, Wells Fargo, um, most of the big banks invest very heavily in companies that profit off of prisons, profit off of the drug war, profit off of mass incarceration. So Wells Fargo, for example, has heavily invested in um, the 
in companies like the Corrections Corporation of America and GeoGroup, which are companies that could not exist, that only exist as an extension of the state. They operate prisons for the state where people are sent largely for victimless crimes and where grotesque human rights abuses occur. And the big the banks that many people bank with profit very directly off of that. I kind of think of the current law enforcement system that we have, it in many ways it depends on repeat criminals. It, it in, mm-hmm. in other words, if it if if the law enforcement whole if the whole law enforcement system that we have, the whole I should say the whole justice system, if the justice system actually did what people think that it does, then uh, theoretically it would be eliminating. Uh, maybe not when I say eliminating criminals, I'm not talking about killing people. I'm talking about eliminating criminals in society, either retraining them or putting them away where they're not bothering people or it would it would deal with the criminal problem in some way and make things better. But I argue that the current uh, justice system that is in existence in pretty much every country, including the U.S., feeds on. The, the the requirement to create more criminals. It has to have repeat criminals and it has to have a continuing, continuing expansion of more and more of them in order to justify more and more of this system. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, when, when you start to talk to somebody about a, about a stateless society and, and one of the early things that they're going to say, if they're not talking about roads, they're going to tell you, well, what are you going to do with all the criminals? And I think they fail to see that one th- that the thing that they depend on in the state to deal with criminals is the major thing that creates criminals. I think that's definitely accurate. I mean, a, for example, a study by Canadian criminologist Paul Gendrew uh, combined around 50 different studies. It was essentially a meta-analysis that studied the deterrence and effect of imprisonment. And... Uh, the report said that none of the analyses found imprisonment reduced recidivism. The recidivism rate for offenders who were imprisoned as opposed to given a community sanction was similar. In addition, longer sentences were not associated with reduced recidivism. In fact, the opposite was found. Longer sentences were associated with a 3% increase in recidivism. This finding suggests some support for the theory that prison may serve as a school for crime for some offenders. And that's exactly the incentive structure that you would expect out of a prison industrial complex. If you've got a variety of interest groups, not just for-profit prisons prisons themselves, but also prison guards unions and companies that do a variety of contracting with prisons, there are prison profiteers that profit off of providing inadequate medical care for prisoners, companies that price gouge prisoners on phone calls to their families, etc. All of these interest groups have an interest in continually creating more prisoners. They don't have an interest in decreasing the amount of incarceration needs to be used. So the incentives aren't in favor of finding things that are going to actually reduce recidivism. And the data suggests that recidivism isn't reduced by incarceration. So I think that you're definitely right about that, or at least there's substantial evidence for the type of theory you're positing. Now, in addition to everything that we've just talked about, we also have the problem of um, what I consider a form of slavery, it, it may not be as obvious, but uh, uh, prison labor is, in essence, uh, slave labor, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And it actually derives pretty directly from the system of slavery that emerged, that 
operated as a system of racist chattel slavery. The 13th Amendment prohibits slavery, quote, except as a punishment for a crime. So rather than abolishing slavery, the 13th Amendment simply changed its form. I argue this a bit in my in an op-ed I wrote back in July called Prison Abolition is Practical. And I quote Angela Davis, who in her book, Are Prisons Obsolete, notes that after the Civil War, Southern states used the black code to criminalize blacks, and she writes, quote, slave owners may have been concerned for their survival of the individual slaves, who, after all, represented significant investments. Convicts, on the other hand, were not least, released not as individuals, but as a group, and they could be worked literally to death without affecting the profitability of a convict crew. And this extension sort of continues today. So, for example, the Louisiana State Penitentiary is better known as Angola, and that was converted directly from a slave plantation to a prison, and forced agricultural labor still happens there. But it's not just an agricultural plantation system that is being operated here. There are a lot of companies that we tend to buy consumer goods from, that use uh, prison labor, that use prison slave labor, including Walmart, AT&T, and Starbucks. And then there's also companies that are heavily involved in the military-industrial complex that also profit directly from slave labor in the prison-industrial complex, companies like BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, and Boeing. And the racism associated with slavery still persists as well. 60% of prisoners are people of color. And we can look to, for example, stop and frisk for an example of the amount of racial profiling that's involved in policing that sends people into the prison system. So I think it's absolutely accurate to say that prison labor operates as an extension of slavery in modern society because there was a massive loophole in the 13th Amendment that allowed for the criminalization of blacks first through the black codes and even ignoring the racial elements. Uh, we, the 13th Amendment permits slavery to occur in prison. And a lot of, of the problems that we have with crime in the U.S. is, I think, is based squarely on the variety of prohibitions that we have, whether we're talking about, you know, people think, well, the prohibition of alcohol, that happened a long time ago. But no, actually, there is currently a prohibition of, of alcohol in the U.S. in the sense that, I could very easily go to my kitchen and make a nice batch of whiskey. And, uh, well, I, it would take a little bit longer for whiskey because uh, there's an aging process. But I could make some pretty decent vodka in my kitchen, uh, good enough to where I could begin selling it and make a little mom-and-pop operation. I could undercut the current uh, prices of vodka dramatically, um, but I'm prohibited. Uh, it's a controlled substance in that sense. And when we put, in addition to that, the ridiculous drug laws, the ridiculous the ridiculous laws in reference to medications like pain, reliev pain relievers and things like that, um, there's levels and levels of prohibition that are built into the justice system now that create distortions in the market that create criminals. And, you know, not only is it easy to argue that that whole system is, is uh, uh, racially tilted, to, to punish uh, black people in society more uh, or at least um, disproportionately. But it was, uh, it's been shown over and over that it was designed that way. It was the, the prohibition specifically on drugs was intentionally designed to hit uh, uh, African Americans uh, disproportionately, wasn't it? Wasn't it? 
Uh, yeah, I, this isn't that history isn't something I've done sufficient research on to give much comment. But yes, that's my understanding is that there was definitely racist intent. For example, uh, the nation's first drug czar, Anslinger, uh, made a variety of racist comments in justifying his prohibition on um, marijuana. Harry J. Anslinger was the um, first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he said things like, quote, reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. He blamed jazz music for the spread of marijuana. He was incredibly racist in the rhetoric he used to justify marijuana prohibition, and racist rhetoric was instrumental in the initial criminalization of drugs. So I think that saying it's racist by design is quite accurate. The current proponents of the drug war may have no overt desire to maintain the racism of the system, but at this point, the racism is systemic in its effects, and that follows pretty naturally from the founding intent. I would say that's the same with uh, what I might call a prohibition on self-defense as well. It's, mm, it's, absolutely. Not, it's not hard to make the argument that you know, gun control in the U.S. Well, the first form of gun control in the U.S., I would argue, was against Native Americans, against the uh, Native Indians. Um, that you know, it was it was ingrained right from the early days, from the days of the Pilgrims, that uh, you can't sell um, guns to Native Americans. And even there was a case uh, Murray Rothbard wrote about this in his first volume of. Uh, of the book that the name escapes my mind. But anyway, um, there was one uh, a group of uh, settlers who openly traded uh, rum and guns with the Indians, and it was an entirely peaceful uh, uh, situation. They were, the Indians weren't in any way aggressive toward the settlers. Everything was going fine. But the pilgrims, who they were actually um, Puritans, in Massachusetts were so upset that these people were supplying guns to the Indians. And what are the Indians doing with the guns? They're shooting deer and they're eating and making, you know, uh, making a living essentially, uh, hunting and, and bringing in the furs for trading. That's what the Indians were doing with the guns. There was, there was no Indian wars going on. Um, but the, uh, uh, but these Massachusetts Puritans were so upset that you would allow those people, those barbarians, those you know half apes, those that's how that's how they viewed the natives. Uh, they were so upset that these other guys were trading guns to the to the Indians that they literally attacked the town, um, arrested the occupants of the town, beat uh, one of them, the leader of the, of the sort of the mayor of that town. They almost beat him to death. And then uh, force them to leave and go back to England. And that's you know this is literally Miles Standish and the the people that we that America tends to worship as the uh, you know as the the pilgrims. That's the guys who did this. And so gun control in the United States, and I would argue self defense is an aspect of that, has been racially charged since the beginning. And it certainly was uh, an aspect. Uh, racism was an aspect of gun control like in the 60s or even in the late 1800s when uh, uh, certain black uh, groups were were prohibited from carrying arms. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, California's first big gun control law was the Mulford Act, which was signed into law by Governor Ronald Reagan with the direct intent of disarming the Black Panther Party. 
who were carrying guns to defend themselves from racists and from cops. And uh, more even now, regardless of the intent of gun control, um, the effects remain racist. Anthony Gregory of the Independent Institute, he's also affiliated with the Center for a Stateless Society, has a great blog post titled, Who Goes to Prison Due to Gun Control? And um, he points out that, uh, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, for fiscal year 2011, 49.6% of those sentenced to federal incarceration with a primary offense of firearms violations were black, 20.6% 20.6% were Hispanic, and only 27.5% were white. And so you see direct racial disparities in who is jailed in relation to gun control. And we can also see this in background check policy, right? So uh, a lot of people right now, a lot of liberals are pushing for expanding background checks. And even though I disagree with state-coerced background checks, period, some case could be made if background checks were solely looking at violent criminals, but they're not. Background checks are looking at anyone convicted of a felony. Well, there you're going to get disproportionately people of color because of our racist criminal justice system. A specific category is anyone convicted of a drug offense. This is specifically people who are nonviolent, who are barred from purchasing means of self-defense legally. And this is, again, a group that's disproportionately people of color. Then another group that background checks are designed to bar from purchasing guns are undocumented immigrants. What's their crime? Crossing an imaginary line in the sand that was drawn through U.S. conquest, war, and land theft. And again, disproportionately people of color who are subjected to grotesque and brutal racism in this country. So the racist effects of gun control persist. And even some policies that have primarily been taken up, uh, been taken up and opposed by liberals like stop-and-frisk searches in New York City, those are designed to find guns. Those are essentially a form of extra-authoritarian gun policy, and those searches are notoriously racist. The vast majority of people stopped and frisked are blacks and Hispanics, and they're also transphobic. Uh, Transgender people also face, and gay people and queer people in general, tend to face disproportionate searches under stop and frisk in New York as well. So when we talk about gun control, we're talking about policies that historically have been intentionally racist and that now are structurally racist, albeit probably not intentionally racist. Also, when it comes to self-defense, there's a lot of self-defense issues that are very important beyond gun control. For example, you see some people who are in jail or prison who are incarcerated for defending themselves from pretty brutal hate crimes. For example, in Minnesota, Faith A. McDonald is currently incarcerated for manslaughter because she's a black transgender woman, and she was um, assaulted while she was walking at night along with her friends, and she was assaulted by a racist who called her multiple racial slurs and uh, as well as transphobic and homophobic slurs and uh, began to beat her, and uh, by the end of the altercation, there's pretty dubious evidence as to what exactly happened, but by the end of the altercation, uh, the man who assaulted her was dead, stabbed with a knife. Well, that's a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense, if indeed Seisei was responsible, but she's in jail because of it. You see a similar case in New Jersey with the New Jersey Four, 
um, who were lesbian women of color who were uh, walking at night and who were assaulted by a man who uh, threatened them with sexual violence and engaged in a variety of slurs. Uh, another man came to intervene on behalf of these women. Uh, by the end of the altercation, the man who was um, the initial assailant was not dead, simply injured. Um, but the people, but the lesbians were sentenced to years in prison. I can look up some details on the case, but you see these various cases of the criminalization of self-defense. Um, other cases relate to women who fight back against domestic abusers, and the Michigan Women's Justice and Clemency Project has some great data on those sorts of self-defense cases that involve essentially self-defense in one's own home. And so this is one reason that I think libertarians need to focus not just on quote-unquote nonviolent offenders, because a lot of people who are in prison for violent crimes were not the aggressors. They were defending themselves, and then they got caught up in America's oppressive criminal justice system as a result. You uh, mentioned something really important there, too, uh, and and it is this myth that somehow liberals uh, are the champions of civil of civil liberties or civil rights, and uh, often it's the case that yeah, on the surface or or you know if you look at who they're donating to or whatever, there are individual liberals who are you know very concerned with. Uh, uh, civil uh, civil rights or whatever, um, but deep down inside, their actions speak a totally different story. And um, I learned from you about a company called Management Training Corporation, and mm-hmm. I was pretty shocked by the information I learned about that. Yeah, um, the Management and Training Corporation uh, is a company based out of Centerville, Utah. I live in Utah, and so I've actually managed to meet with their executives in the course of protesting their company. And so the Management and Training Corporation is the third largest operator of for-profit prisons in the United States. And so they've operated prisons, jails, and immigration detention centers all across the country. Perhaps the most infamous of the immigration detention centers that they operate is uh, one called, um, it's, they don't operate it anymore, but it was one called the Willisey Detention Center, which was this massive tent city in Texas where immigrants were sent. And if you studied America's immigration detention system, what you find out is that immigrants aren't given substantial due process rights when they're sent to these detention centers. So these aren't people who have necessarily committed any crime, certainly not anything libertarians would consider a crime. And an investigation of this facility by uh, PBS's show Frontline found that MTC's Willisie Detention Center was a site of rampant sexual abuse and that these sexual abuses were being covered up by guards. We tried to bring this up multiple times when we were meeting with executives from the Management and Training Corporation, and they essentially kept trying to brush this aside. Issa Arnita, their... uh, public relations director, whose job presumably includes reading these sorts of reports, who said he had read these reports, um, when we pushed him on this, 
all he offered as an argument against it was, quote, you don't believe everything you read in the media, do you? Well, one, frontline is a reputable source. Two, that's not an argument. That suggests to me that the report was too kind, given that their public relations director couldn't come up with any real evidence or argument against it. And But Jane Marquardt, who's the board vice chair of this company, she's a big, prominent liberal. She's active in the Democratic Party. She's received awards from mainstream liberal LGBTQ rights organizations like Equality Utah and the Human Rights Campaign. And yet she profits off of these grotesque human rights abuses. When I asked her about whether uh, transgender women were forced to be housed with male prisoners, subjecting them to serious and severe risks of assault, bigotry, harassment, and rape, she offered no satisfactory answer. She and others affiliated with MTC simply stated that where trans women are housed is decided not by MTC, but by the governments they contract with. She passed the buck, and rather than saying that she would do anything to protect the human rights of a community that she's received awards for supposedly defending the human rights of, she simply said, nope, it's not my fault if they get housed in inhumane conditions. I just profit off of it. To be clear, that's not a quote. That's just my interpretation. Um, but and we asked her about the cover-ups of sexual abuse of immigrants in immigration detention centers. And she simply said, that would be terrible if it were happening in our facilities. I said, it is. Here's the report. She didn't read it at all in the meeting. This woman receives awards and accolades from liberal groups that claim to fight for human rights. She gives her money to liberal human rights organizations. But when it comes right down to it, she's not willing to get out of the business of profiting off of human rights abuses. And that's the core hypocrisy of some of the wealthiest liberals. You see similar dynamics with Warren Buffett, who is happy to argue that he should be taxed more, but when it comes to his investments, heavily invests in companies that profit off of human rights abuses. You see it with Barack Obama, who runs as a peace candidate and a civil liberties candidate, and then becomes the drone president, who has now been accused of war crimes, correctly in my view, by Amnesty International. And so this dynamic of hypocrisy among elite liberals is really one of the most repulsive parts of mainstream politics, and it's one that you don't see addressed very often, because those of us who are going to address it are primarily either radical libertarians or members of the far left. Let's uh, let's break here, and we'll throw in a commercial, and uh, I'll save this file in case we lose it or whatever. And folks, stick with us. We'll be right back in just a few seconds. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, fights to protect your rights in the digital world. When a patent troll threatened podcasters, they fought back. EFF has also defended your right to encryption and has sued the NSA to end the government's mass suspicionless surveillance. There are different ways you can help EFF, from donations to signing petitions to writing your representatives to just spreading the word. Find out more at EFF.org. That's EFF.org. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy. 
Amazon has great prices, and in most cases, you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of. Plus, it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at BadQuaker.com, Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. And it's been Stone back on the Bad Quaker podcast with Nathan Goodman. And uh, hmm, before the break, we were picking on liberals a little bit and the hypocrisy of liberals. But uh, but I could go on for twenty or thirty minutes and talk about the hypocrisy of conservatives as well. You know, they talk about gun rights, or they talk about um, you know ratcheting back government, or they talk about cutting spending, and they don't do any of those things. They don't really stand for any of those things. What they actually allow is more gun control and more spending and a bigger government. Even though they they preach the other direction, what they do doesn't match what they say. And that's the same same way with liberals. And I think as libertarians, we have a certain responsibility to to actually walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Um, and I think in a stateless society, the only way we could function is if we take care of each other and if we point out what's wrong and we point out what's right. And uh, and in a sense, we have to do that now. Otherwise, otherwise we're as bad a hypocrites as the uh, the liberals and the conservatives are. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Nathan? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. Cooperation and uh, building a voluntary infrastructure for doing the good things that the state purports to be able to do is, I think, quite vital. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Mutual aid is one. Uh, the libertarian David Beto has a great book called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State that documents how... Uh, fraternal societies and mutual aid organizations provided affordable health care to America's working class back in the 1800s before the government intervened and created the modern monstrosity that is our current insurance market. Um, you can also see examples of mutual aid in Scott Crow's work with groups uh, like the Common Ground Collective, which was an anarchist organization that formed after Hurricane Katrina to try to provide humanitarian aid to people who were affected by that hurricane, by that disaster. And they worked very closely with the local community and created a lot of local community autonomy and power in order to empower people there to have a solid infrastructure for rebuilding rather than having them be dependent on the dysfunctional response of the federal government or on paternalistic, condescending approaches like charity where the people who are directly affected and who have the local distributed knowledge of what their needs are are closed out of the process. So I think that's something really valuable about mutual aid. And I think there's a lot of important work to be done in that direction I also think that, and that's also part of why the Center for a Stateless Society has a new program called Entrepreneurial Anti-Capitalism. Uh, we came into a bunch of money recently that we're going to try to allocate to a variety of different radical projects to build uh, technology and community 
and resistance to power and oppression throughout the world. And so if you're aware of any projects that are really helping people throughout the world, helping resist the state, helping build community, helping build technological alternatives to the status quo, that's something where the Center for a Stateless Society can help, I think. And so there's a lot of these examples of how community solidarity and mutual aid should form the basis of a free society. And I think that's where we really need to focus a lot of our efforts. We can't just talk about what's wrong with the existing system. Right now we need to start building something better, and a lot of anarchists are. I agree with that 100%. And when you're talking about someone who's uh, working in that area and uh, and could uh, use some support, my first thought immediately was of Cody Wilson, but uh, the uh, um, printable gun guy. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't he also involved with the Dark Wallet project? He is. Or? Yeah, that's his latest. Yeah. Um, but I, I also, since we're talking about the uh, Center for the Stateless Society, and, you know, they've done a lot of really good work. Um, but there was a thing that I wanted to ask you about and let you uh, talk about. I've talked about it a couple times on the podcast, but I haven't really got into it in depth. Um, back in September, there was an incident that took place, I think it was September, at the Center for Stateless Society where an individual um, associated with, I believe, with, with students for Stateless Society, you can correct me if I'm wrong on, on any aspect of this, if I recall the story, he uh, went on Facebook and posted just a horrific, racist, hate-filled rant and someone uh, essentially copied and pasted that from Facebook over to, I think, uh, uh, Students for Stateless Society's site. And the individual who had spouted all of this hate um, through a series of uh, interesting tricks got, uh, got uh, Center for Stateless Society knocked off the Internet temporarily. Uh, can you tell us what happened with that, clarify that story, and, and tell us what the status of all that is? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So it wasn't just one racist. It was actually a group of racists associated with a former Students for a Stateless Society chapter in Belgium, Students for a Stateless Society, UGENT. And uh, that group had a Facebook group that was a cesspool of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim speech. They talked about how Muslim immigrants were uh, poisoning the genetic, the quote, genetic pool. So there was a lot of sort of neo-eugenicist overtones to things. Um, they used racial slurs like sand, N-word. Um, they proposed killing Muslims as well as people who defend the rights of Muslims. It was just some really horrific racism in that they were talking about a group that is already subjected to the brunt of anti-immigrant laws, and um, there are various anti-Muslim racist laws in Europe, for example, bans on women wearing veils. And uh, they were, so they were advocating really grotesque racism, and for obvious reasons, Students for a Stateless Society and the Center for a Stateless Society do not want to be associated with this. 
we don't want to provide a platform for it. We don't think that this is something that is compatible with our ideas about liberty. You don't go after people who are already in an oppressed group. You don't say that based on someone's identification with a collective, all of those individuals should be dehumanized and subjected to violence. That's just not acceptable. And so at Students for a Stateless Society, we published a post, S4SSU, not anarchists or comrades, and uh, posted the excerpts and said, this is not okay. While we don't believe in trademarks and don't own the trademark to S4SS, you're not affiliated with us. You can keep the name. You can do what you want. You have all your natural rights, of course, but we're not going to be okay with this, and we're going to fight against racism, and we're going to disassociate from any racist. And um, so that was the initial post. And then we received some cease and desist letters from one of the individuals, one of the racists who we quoted, a man named Olivier Jansen, in which he said that he wanted his quotes removed from the site or he would file an intellectual property notice to get our site removed. So, And we didn't think he would go through with this. We essentially, Brett Spangler sent him back some rather <laughs> hilariously mean responses. Um, and, uh, but eventually he did follow through with the threat, hiring an attorney named J.D. Obenberger to file a DNCA takedown request against both of our sites. So that was the essential um, tactic that he used was saying, I'm going to use inter international intellectual property law to take down your website on a basis of a claim that I own a copyright on my racist statements and therefore you can't quote them. Now, this is wrong on so many levels. First of all, on a legal level, Quoting something for purposes of criticism is classic fair use. The complaint was legally bogus, even if you believe in intellectual property law, which we at the Center for a Stateless Society don't think intellectual property law is legitimate, period. And it essentially operated on the idea of copywriting racism. Honestly, I wish someone would patent racism so that we had an artificial scarcity of it. <laughs> it was costlier for people to be racist. I mean, I don't, because that would be worse than unjust. But, you know, if people are going to pioneer innovative tactics in intellectual property and racism, they might as well, you know, do it in a way that reduces racism in the world rather than eliminating call-outs of it. But that was the essential tactic. It kept our sites down for around three days. And uh, the result of this was a lot of frustration on our part. We, but it was also the Strivan effect. Had an IP request, take on the request, not been filed against us, only regular readers of C4SS and S4SS would have known about this guy's racism. But... <laughs> The Barbara Streisand effect, the idea that when you try to censor something on the Internet, it becomes more viral, set in. This story got reported at Tector. It got reported at Reason. So far more people knew that this guy was a racist than ever would have 
had he not filed his intellectual property takedown notice. Now, eventually, he either decided he wanted this Streisand effect to stop, or he genuinely felt remorse on a basis of libertarian principles for using the power of the state to take down our website. And he sent us an apology, as well as a large sum of money in bitcoins. And um, he and he ordered his attorney, J.D. Obenberger, who is a complete scumbag of an attorney who brags on his website about how he can use frivolous intellectual property or notices to take down essentially any website. He brags about his ability to violate and bypass the First Amendment. Um, but on the advice of his client, uh, and he stated that this was against his advice, uh, this attorney did withdraw his takedown notice and we got our websites back along with a substantial amount of money that we're going to use to finance anarchist projects and community throughout the world. But it was quite the strange ordeal. What's interesting is given the racist and neo-fascist overtones of the person who filed the takedown request, he did put the Nazi back in copyright Nazi. Um, but that's the essential basis of the story. And it revealed a lot of stuff about the way in which intellectual property can suppress free speech, the way in which intellectual property can uphold bigotry and inequality, and the way in which bigots can pose a substantial threat to liberty, and why I think the libertarian movement should be much less tolerant of bigotry than it is. Yeah, um, you know, hmm, I don't know how to how to bring this up tactfully, um, but so I'll just make a, a non-tactful statement. Um, the, there are specifically in the New Hampshire uh, area, uh, there is at least one and possibly a pocket. I would say a pocket of uh, people with slightly different, but essentially at their core, the same kind of beliefs. And I think without bringing undue attention, without throwing the Streisand effect back into a, into effect, um, I think it's our responsibility as libertarians, and I think it's the responsibility of the of the activists, specifically in New Hampshire, to uh, to spot that and um, and purge themselves of it. Not just officially organization organizationally, but on a personal level of not being associated with people who you know uh, who hate, who want to kill, who who bring that kind of talk. And that type of um, that kind of pollution into a movement that is is entirely based on peace and on respecting one another, and uh, and really has nothing to do with acting violent and with hate and with uh, racial slurs and and all that kind of thing. That's my little uh, that's my little side rant. That maybe the folks in New Hampshire, I'll throw a gauntlet down here. Maybe you can have the same guts that the Center for Stateless Society had. And I'm not talking about on an organizational level. I'm talking about on an individual level of purging. You know, here's the crudest way I can say it. If you leave the crap in the toilet, it's going to stink. Pull the handle, folks. Pull that handle. Anyway, sorry about throwing that in in the middle of our discussion, Nathan. It was just, you know, it's starting to stink up there. And unless somebody... 
pulls the handle and flushes that down, it's just going to get worse and worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's a couple things that are difficult barriers to overcome when it comes to pushing libertarians to use the libertarian means of free association and disassociation to get rid of bigotry in the movement. Um, And I think part of it stems from the strategy that Rothbard and Rockwell pushed in the 90s of the paleo strategy of saying we're going to ally with right-wing racists and even making pro-cop comments in the process. And that's where Ron Paul's racist newsletters came into existence. And interestingly, considering it was Ron Paul, that was a clear example of blowback. Um, (laughs) But you, uh, you see, and there's also the alternate, another tendency that's less on that paleo wing and more in sort of the more liberal coctopus wing of being very wary of political correctness, of having sort of a thick libertarian commitment to uh, freedom of thought to the point where you can't say that I, you can't criticize ideas and say that they're beyond the pale to the point where you're going to disassociate with them. And you have every right to disassociate from people. On a libertarian basis, it's completely just to disassociate from people for any reason. And it seems like if there's anyone we should be disassociating from, it's people who are dehumanizing other people who are entrenching oppressions that have been forged through violence and state repression and structural inequality and dehumanization. We need to be disassociating from that. Um, There was, after this whole ordeal with the takedown requests against the Center for a Stateless Society, Jason Lee Bias of C4SS and of Students for a Stateless Society, he goes to university in Oklahoma, published a post on essentially lessons from the takedown. And the second lesson he noted was never trust racists or bigots of any kind. Some segments, quote, some segments of the libertarian movement, unfortunately, this even includes some genuinely radical libertarians who I otherwise have a strong affinity for, have in the past made apologies for racists or downplayed the significance of the issue. Wanting to focus on the state and its crimes, they've turned a blind eye to forms of social oppression that, while not literally aggressive, still cause very real harm to people on a daily basis. Wanting to form as big of a tent as possible, they've welcomed in people who might not advocate aggression, but whose visions of a free society go entirely against the spirit that makes most people want it. What Jansen's and his group at the University of Genet have now shown is how interconnected opposing social oppression and opposing straight ag- state aggression really are. When you allow yourself to think of some people as less than human, you open the door to ignoring people's basic human dignity. Anarchism and libertarianism more generally, for that matter, and bigotry are at enemies. As long as we are anarchists and as long as we are libertarians, we will push back against those who use our names in the service of oppression. We need to oppose oppression across the board. It's as simple as that. And what tactics you choose to do that may vary. Maybe you don't want to fully disassociate from someone who makes bigoted statements. And individuals have discretion on that. But at the very least, call them out when they do. At the very least, challenge them. At the very least, try to change their mind. Don't say, I'm going to just let it slide because, well, they agree with me on the state. No, these issues matter, and we need to be working to end oppression everywhere. Um, something you were talking about earlier uh, 
in regards to uh, the sexual harassment that takes place uh, that's almost, you know, it's almost institutionalized in the prison systems, but it also takes place with police uh, police activities and and the uh, the you know how they'll separate out certain and even in the judicial end when uh, mm-hmm. you, you were talking about how a person who's defending themselves end up, ends up going to prison because there's already some prejudices there you know the the stereotype that well uh, you're transgender you're out at night. Um, you must have been guilty of X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been here and there. And so they, so the, so they treat the case different than they would have had it been a, let's say, a 45-year-old white male in the same situation. Mm-hmm. And um, to a large extent, I think that things like, you know. Uh, and I'm not saying that we have to be 100% politically correct at all times and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking it in a totally leftist direction like that, uh, like some universities are and so forth. But at the same time, there are things that, uh, like, like, um, rape jokes and things like this that, lo- that, that instill it into the mind that it's not as big a deal as it really is. And that's really easy for a person who's never experienced anything like that to, to think that, you know, rape jokes are funny or whatever. But in the long run, um, there's, there's a lot of harm there. And if the people pushing that can't see it, uh, through simply pointing it out or through education or so forth, then I think the point has to come where you have to just separate, separate yourself from those people and, uh, and not give a silent approval to it by looking the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think with regards to rape jokes, I think a lot of people, uh, think that something being humor makes it okay or means that it's, um, in essence, taking on the evil of it through humor. But that's not necessarily the case. And I think there's a lot of solid research to support the conclusion that uh, that rape jokes do concrete harm. There have been studies that um, expose people uh, that expose people to sexist humor and to rape jokes and then have them, they expose one half of the group to sexist humor and one half not to um, sexist humor, and then have them evaluate various statements and evaluate to what extent they display hostile sexism, to what extent they'll victim blame people after a sexual assault. And studies tend to show that harmful outcomes related to things like victim blaming, which has a real effect on how we deal with issues of aggression, of really brutal violations of bodily autonomy, um, but these are exacerbated by rape jokes. Similarly, on another end, not just of the people who aren't sexual assault survivors and how they may develop adverse attitudes in relation to rape jokes, we also see... um, find that sexual assault survivors can be triggered by them. And uh, triggers can be very severe and can result in essentially reliving the trauma of the violence that's been done to you. And so I think that this is something that, because of the sort of anti-political, opposition to political correctness, which I think uh, may be a justifiable 
um, or understandable at least response to how speech codes are being imposed by some public universities. But because people go too far in that direction, they're not willing to see how speech, while entirely within your rights, can on a systemic level, wind up victimizing people who have been subjected to aggression while making the general public less likely to respond to aggression in an appropriate and libertarian way. And so I think that that's a really important issue for us to be discussing and educating people on and really getting the information out there about why those types of uh, bigoted and hateful speech can be harmful because I think a lot of people don't realize it, particularly, unfortunately, in the libertarian movement. Um, before I uh, before I let you go, we've been uh, on the phone about an hour, and I really appreciate the time you've you've given me today. But before I let you go, I want to uh, uh, give you the opportunity to give some sh- to to give some I can't talk today to give some shout outs to uh, whatever websites that uh, that you'd like to I, uh, again I'll put a link in today's uh, show notes to your blog uh, dissenting leftist and of course I'll put a, a, a link to the Center for S- uh, stateless society uh, are there any other websites that you'd like to give a shout out to I mean those are the two main ones where you can find my writing I also write occasionally for liberty minded um, so uh, that's I forget whether that's .com or .org. Um, and they also do some great interviews. Um, uh, yeah, libertyminded.org I occasionally write at. And um, beyond that, I don't have any URLs off the top of my head, although there are quite a few great organizations out there that I would encourage people to look into, like maybe search the Prison Divestment Campaign. Um, that's the group that I think has done a lot of incredible work. But beyond that, just thanks for having me. Oh, no problem at all. You know, one other thing I did want to ask you. Um, if you were going to pick out one person, uh, one writer or one one personality or whatever, who would you say uh, has inspired you, uh, or even if there's two or three, that, have ins- that, that are really standouts that have inspired you in, in this journey? Mm, that's a tough choice. There's been a lot of influences. Um, probably within libertarianism, the two, uh, or maybe there are maybe three big influences I've had within uh, libertarianism. Kevin Carson was sort of how I got into the Center for a Stateless Society crowd, and his writing really moved me into fully into libertarianism, because I had a lot of questions about it from a leftist perspective, and he sort of resolved a lot of that. Um, Anthony Gregory is just absolutely excellent because he's one of the few authors in the libertarian movement I know who shares my passion for opposing the injustices committed by the prison system. And then Radley Balco has been a big influence on me through his incredible work surrounding police militarization and police abuse. So within the libertarian movement, those are probably some of my top influences. And then outside of libertarianism, I really started moving in an anti-statist direction because of uh, people like Noam Chomsky and Emma Goldman who are uh, more left anarchists. I got exposed to understanding the evils of imperialism because of Chomsky. And I started exploring anarchism because of Goldman. And so 
those are probably my, those are some of my biggest influences, but it's really hard to narrow it down. Um, thanks again for coming on the show today, and I want to give a, a quick thanks to Jake Shannon for connecting us together and, and uh, uh, sharing our email with Back and Forth so we could uh, make this arrangement. And I also wanted to say really quick, uh, folks, be sure and listen to the Freedom Fiends live every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. They're on the Genesis Communication Network, GCNlive.com, or you can listen to them on the uh, Liberty Radio Network at LRN.FM. And Nathan, thanks again for coming on the show, and I want to extend a, a uh, an invitation that anytime you need to talk about something, anytime you have something going on, any kind of project or whatever, drop me a note and I'll get you back on the show. Excellent. Thanks very much, Ben. And folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much.